I'm Dr. Susan Eyrick, and welcome to Earthfire Radio. Earthfire Institute is a wildlife sanctuary and rehabilitation center whose mission is to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature. David R. Loy is a professor of Buddhist and comparative philosophy, a prolific writer, and a teacher in the Sanbo Zen tradition of Japanese Buddhism. His books include Money, Sex, War, Karma, A New Buddhist Path, and Ecodharma, Buddhist Teachings for the Ecological Crisis, forthcoming in January 2019. He is especially concerned about social and ecological issues. In addition to offering workshops and meditation retreats, he is one of the founders of the new Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center near Boulder, Colorado. In 2014, David received an honorary degree from Carleton College, his alma mater, during his 2014 commencement. In April 2016, David returned his honorary degree to protest the decisions of the Board of Trustees not to divest from fossil fuel investments. It's a joy and a delight to welcome you, David. Thank you. I'm really interested in your work about Buddhism and um, social activism, really, especially with relationship to the environment, because, you know, I care about any kind of social justice, but my work in particular, since I have the sanctuary here, is um, with wildlife. Mm -hmm. But from there, the wildlife acting as, so you never, I never want to say use animals, but because I have them here, many of them for life, they become sort of a, like a portal because I have these incredible stories about them because mm -hmm. I live with them for life. Mm -hmm. So you get to see them in a whole different way as, as beings and, and souls, if you will, um, sentient beings, um, that they, they serve as a portal into all the rest of life because mm -hmm. it's easier for people to start first with the dogs and cats and then mm -hmm. the animals here, etc. So that's what I do as a total passion in order to both um, in, in increase our sense of community to include all living beings, which is my version of the same Buddhist thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then from there to take action, particularly to save land for them, because for me, love without action is meaningless. Mm -hmm. And uh, your ideas to me are very important. I also mentioned to you that um, and all, most of the teachings that I've gone to, it's always completely human focused. And then there's the mm -hmm. dedication of merit at the end, but that's it. Right, right. There are a couple of little things in the articles you sent me that fascinated me about Buddha's relationship with trees and uh, mm. that he was much more nature oriented than is taught now. Right. At least where I have been. Mm. So I, I would love to bring that element in more. I'm not ever going to teach Buddhism because I don't have the training but I can talk about it. Hmm. So I'd like to share your main ideas. That okay. was the discussion I originally wanted to have, but it may end up being an interesting conversation or just a sharing of your ideas in your new book coming out, however it goes. But one thing I would emphasize off the top, well, two things. Number one, you know, we talk about Buddhism, but in reality, of course, there's no such thing. It's Buddhisms. Mm -hmm. And sort of, this kind of fits in with what Buddhism itself emphasizes impermanence and insubstantiality. And 
Buddhism changes, and certainly when it goes to a different culture, it changes. And the reason I emphasize that is like, there are elements within Buddhism that are, are very concerned about other sentient beings, but there's, there's a lot that aren't too. So it's, it's a complex network of traditions rather than one. And, and that's why it's kind of tricky. And I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone in sort of generalizing and, and saying about Buddhism, because what I'm usually doing is sort of taking the best of, of the tradition, even though almost everything that I say or write could be challenged from somewhere within the tradition, you know. So yeah. in other words, it's a complex story. The other point that I wanted to make before I forget it is, uh, I'm interested that, that you um, picked up on, on the Buddha's connection with trees. You know, it, it's not just the Buddha. Um, if you think of uh, Jesus after he was um, baptized by John the Baptist, what did he do? I mean, he went out by himself in the natural world, what fasted 40 days and 40 nights and all that. And Muhammad off into his cave up in yeah. the mountains. It's like there's definitely something really important about going out into the natural world by ourselves so that we're not caught up in the usual human-oriented, well, language for one thing, yeah. human-oriented concerns. And I think this is something that the traditions haven't emphasized enough. I do talk about it a bit in, in, in the new book that's coming out. But, but I think it's really important. It's like somehow getting out by ourselves into the natural world can really disrupt the whole meaning system that we have created in order, in order to, through language and, and through our, the, the ways we work together, the, th the things that we pursue, the things that we learn from each other are valuable, you know, because we're always internalizing those from other people. So I think that that's a really interesting, interesting point that uh, needs to be emphasized. Uh, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> um, we instinctively go to nature to heal, but we don't think about it that much. We don't think about why. Right. But, yeah. And I think that'd be a very useful thing to do more of. Well, I've, I've reflected on it. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with sim sim simply language. I mean, I think our, our first sense of separation from the natural world, if you think of us as animals and then how society developed, I mean, I think the first step was the development of language, which was of course essential and wonderful, but nonetheless, it meant that we tend to find meaning in these sounds coming of our own mouths and we tend to miss the meaning of everything else. It's like when you're in the natural world, there's, there's a whole ecosystem of, of sound and meaning and communication going on. And for the most part, we're missing it because we're so yeah. caught up in, 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 in each other's language. Yeah. You see, we have to record this, David. This is important. Um, I have a similar reaction when we, we do a few retreats here a year with mm -hmm. the animals, very few because I don't want to be a zoo and I want people to take time to be with the animals and I don't want to impose a lot of human busyness on the animals. Mm -hmm. So we do a few retreats a year and in every single retreat, no matter what I say to people, they talk and they talk and, they <laughs> talk. and they're out in this beautiful wildlife garden where they're with wolves for the first and last time probably in their lives mm -hmm. and they're talking to each other mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. they're asking questions. Which one's the alpha? Who gives a damn? Mm. 
Mm. Look at the beauty of the animal. Look at the beingness of it. It's immediately putting the human reference. But the, the point I wanted to make most of all was um, that the minute you shift to talking, yep. you're shifting to a different part of the brain. It's not coming out of your mouth. It's coming, it's coming out of a part of your brain that's not connected to animals and nature. And I, I, I threatened to have a duct tape retreat where everyone has to wear duct tape. <laughs> and you know, about 50% of the people say they'd love it because they understand it. It's their own tendency. You know, I'll remind them and they'll say, oh, thank you. And the, but you can't connect with an animal if you're asking questions. You're in the wrong part of the brain to make that connection. So, 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 yeah. Yeah, that, that sounds right. And of course, in Buddhist retreats, for the most part, they are silent. You know, yeah. certainly in a Zen oh. retreat, there's no, no one's talking, or at least no more than absolutely necessary. Yeah, yes. which, which helps us get beyond that. Yeah. Yes, it's a terrific gift. It's my absolute favorite. I don't even go to retreats mostly unless they're silent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So your, your background is primarily Tibetan, did you say? I'm trying to remember now. Well, my PhD is in psychology. Okay. I'm a bachelor's in biology. Uh -huh. I'm, a, I'm actually a licensed psychologist. Uh -huh. Not that that means anything, um, because anything I learned, I didn't learn in school mm. um, of, of real value, but I have the credential, which mm. gives me some freedom. Um, so I'm a psychologist, biologist, if you will, really interested in all life mm. and the interconnections between all life. Wow. The studying I've done... Um, because I'm pretty isolated, I don't have that much option. It's Tibetan Buddhism, so I'm no Buddhist expert. Though, um, when I was 14 or 15, I picked up a book by Alan Watts and said, yes, hmm. that's how I think. So it's instinctive with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'll study whatever I have around here, <laughs> which might be Vipassana or Tibetan or whatever, whoever comes to teach in this area. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the person I've studied with most probably would have been with Anam Tupton. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And also with John Travis of Spirit Rock and very and Pak Chuck Rinpoche and various and sundry individuals. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, got it. So yeah, interesting background. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about Buddhism is um, you know, today we are exposed or can be exposed to so many different not only teachers, but different traditions. And, and I think that's important as far as helping us get stuck in one, you know. It's, yeah. the, it's the whole thing about pointing at the moon. If you have a finger pointing at the moon, what usually happens is we mistake the finger for the moon. But if you have a lot of fingers pointing at what may or may not be the same moon, it, you're less likely to cling to any particular finger, something like that. And the other thing is you, don't, you miss all the stars around it. <laughs> that's great that's great i've never heard that one before i just came out of my mind because that's how i think <laughs> better or worse <laughs> not to get too locked into the moon yeah i mean all life <laughs> you know so, some awareness of it all the time the broader the better even yeah. though we have to focus it's like a combination of the two <laughs> yeah we had a, a Buddhist nun come do, uh, do a silent retreat here for a month, and she was from the, um, she'd studied in Burma for many years. So it was really interesting having her here because at that point I'd only done the Tibetan tradition. It was really interesting to hear the little, also she was a lovely woman, but there was a little edge in her voice about complaints about Tibetan Buddhism. 
which mm. immediately got me into what you just said, you know, mm. cool, the competitions and they do this wrong and we do it right, right back into human territoriality, <laughs> you know, which is the same as animal territoriality in my mind, ultimately mm -hmm. goes down to the same fundamental roots. It's, it's no different in Buddhism than in any other tradition where you have this kind of spectrum of kind of, what is it? Conservatism, fundamentalism, um, evangelism on one side and a very kind of open. And the reason I mention it is there, there's a lot of uh, sort of in, interreligious dialogue going on, especially between Buddhists and Christians. And at, at that level, people don't find it very difficult to talk and communicate and understand and relate to each other it's usually greater within a tradition to talk to somebody who's supposedly of your same tradition, but is much more conservative and more attached to the forms and the doctrines and the rituals and the usual ways of thinking. When they introduced wolves back into Yellowstone, they killed many of the coyotes. The coyotes will kill foxes. So what you do is you kill the comp closest competition to you. So huh. It's sort of the same thing. It, if it's intra-tribal, it's competition, and you try to destroy and win, whether it's another religion, you don't care as much. I'm not always going to bring out animals into everything, but it just made me think of it when you said that. Well, I mean, I think it is important to bring them in. Um, what, what I was thinking about in, in preparing for this conversation is, you know, how, where and how have we made this separation between ourselves and the natural yeah, world? Great. Especially with, but not only with animals. And, and I've mentioned the first stage or, uh, or the first thing that occurs to me, the idea of uh, like just language by itself. Right. A second one would be agriculture, I think, because, you know, when you're, um, if, if you're hunting gathering, well, you're doing what lots of animals do and you're part of the predator-prey system. And sure, you're, you're, you could be pretty tough on the other species, but it, you're not that different. You're, you're part of that whole, <coughs> excuse me, you're, you're part of that whole predator-prey ecosystem. And so you're gonna feel a part of it. But once, you're, once you have agriculture and once you're growing food, then a lot of animals become enemies because they're, threats to your food, they get into the fields and so forth. And so the, the sense of separation becomes a lot uh, stronger, I think. And then third, and, and this is something that I've worked on a lot, uh, once you get script, especially alphabetic script, there seems to be an enormous change in the way the brain works huh. and, and also an enormous change in religions. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of the axial age. Um, Religions like the Abrahamic, uh, Buddhism, Jainism, Hinduism, Taoism, Confucianism, and even sort of Greek philosophy, it's, it's quite striking that they tend to, to have originated around the same time, you know, right. within the middle of the first millennium BCE. And that, the kind of religion that developed then uh, has, has a lot of very positive traits. Uh -huh. But nonetheless, it also tended to create what's sometimes called cosmological dualism. In other words, something like a heaven or, or a nirvana or, or some other reality that's outside this world, not only outside the natural world, but helps us survive death. And 
I think this is this has been really important again for our sense of separation from the natural world. It, we we can see in the natural world, things are born, things pass away, they die, that they're suffering, and we want to transcend it. And how do we do it? You know, one of the main ways is we believe in a, in a religious path or a religious institution that promises the idea of some <coughs> otherworldly salvation, you know? And, and that just sort of, it seems to me, plugs, um, puts almost the final nail in, well, not the final nail, but a big nail in our sense of separation from the natural world. We don't want to be part of the natural world, right? We want to be special. We want to be different. We want to be deserving of a higher fate uh, or destiny. And so this world becomes devalued into a kind of training ground for, um, I mean, we're only here for a few years, but if we act in the right way, we can qualify for eternity in heaven with God, right? something like that. And, and I think all of this encourages our devaluation and dissociation from the natural world. And then you get modern technologies, of course, which just carry that to, uh, to the nth degree. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at that point, there's nothing within our worldview that restrains our tendency to use and abuse the natural world for whatever, you know, to degrade it into resources and use it in any way yeah. we want for our own purposes. Yeah. So anyway, those are sort of things that were on my mind thinking about what's happened. That's great. I was at a conference recently. I was, I was speaking at a conference in Italy called Our Sacred Earth. Mm. And um, there were a lot of economists speaking there because it was co-founded by a, a school of econ economics that wanted to look at economics differently. Mm -hmm. But they were still talking about... Um, how you build buildings differently and all that. And I raised the question, um, but who asked the land? Mm -hmm. dead silence. They couldn't even come up with it. No, the whole idea was so brand new. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. uh, yes, you can buy some land. Yes, you can build on it differently, but who asked the land what it wanted to be used for? <laughs> that's That's... <laughs> That's fascinating because I'm writing about that in the new book. The whole concept of property. Yeah. You know, it's like once, well, again, once you get agriculture, once you get settled civilizations, then you get property, which is to say the yeah. land belongs to us yeah. rather than vice versa, as it would be for lots of indigenous people. Yeah. 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 And so we just wanted to make, say that an aside, but I was fascinated by your, what was the third question? Good thing you had. Yeah. How, what do you think is the relationship between our getting script and all the religions arising around the same time? But, um, okay, let me. In general, you said right, yeah. item number three was that we got a script. So right. what about that? Uh, well, first of all, two types of script. I mean, when, when you go back to the oldest, when you go, say, to... Uh, uh, say Egyptian hieroglyphs or Mayan glyphs. Um, th this is an esoteric language. It's like you, you, you have to have a whole special profession of scribes to make sense of it, to learn how to use it. But once you get alphabetic script, then it, it, it becomes more open to everybody. Um, the, 
the argument about script and and um, the axial age religions is 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 something that a lot of people have sort of talked about and and thought about. Um, one idea seems to be that once you have script, then the words take on a life of their own. Uh-huh. And it seems, it's like they have a reality apart from you or me. In an oral culture, um, words disappear as, as quickly as they're spoken, except insofar as we remember them. And it's interesting, in earliest Buddhism, it's a completely oral tradition. But around 400 years, three to 400 years later, people start to write it down. And then you get this new development, Mahayana Buddhism, which, by the way, is very much connected with script. The, the metaphors change in place of the old oral metaphors, thus have I heard, which is how all of the um, um, earliest Pali canon texts. It's all, it, it's like the role of the early monks was to memorize the earliest texts and to teach them and to teach from them because that's how the tradition would be preserved. Once you get script, once it's written down, then a lot of interesting things happen. One of them is that you get what's called secondary reflection. So you, you have it written down and then you can, your job isn't just to perpetuate it and expound it, but now you can think about it and then you'll get differing de- de- different developments, um, yeah. you know, but it also involves, again, a, it's like, if you go back to earliest Buddhism, it seems to be the case that after the Buddha died, there were some bhikkhu who would, in fact, do what he recommended and sort of go out into the forest and wander like a rhinoceros by yourself and meditate. But also you got a more urban development, the monastics. And the monastics are the ones who would eventually develop or use writing. And then there's that much more dissociation from the natural world because you're living in towns and cities. And in order to have a, a, um, a script tradition, which is to say a sacred text, then you're going to have to have a more urban you know, you, you have to have the materials, you have to have a way of writing them down and, and, and preserving them. And it gets quite interesting in this way. And, and then here, here's one of the most important things. Once you can write down in script, the sacred, which for the indigenous people would have been the earth, which would have been the natural world, right? It would have been the great sky, the animals. Now, where is the sacred? It's in the texts. Uh-huh. If you think about it, you know, it's like the Torah, right? The yeah. Bible, the Quran. This is the sacred thing. It's not the food that we eat. It's not the natural world. And yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things about Buddhism is that there's a little bit of a tension about this. Uh, a lot of people treat Buddhist texts as sacred, but it's really clear they're, they're, they're not revealed. Rather, what they really are is... Uh, like a guidebook to transform yourself or a roadmap. Yeah. The Buddha is very clear about that. But yeah. of course, as usual, most of us miss it. But the, the whole, so religion becomes, you've got the sacred thing in your hand and you've got to preserve it and learn from that and, and the highest meaning, right? Because say for, say for Christians, you've got the Bible. This is the inerrant Bible. This is the word of God. This is what's sacred. 
is it surprising that we end up devaluing and missing the whole point of the natural world? Interesting. Anyway, I'm just kind of throwing a lot of stuff at you that uh, I've been fascinated by. Throw away. Throw some more. <laughs> so are you were worried you wouldn't have enough to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> I'm never worried about that. That's, um, yeah, a friend of mine talks a lot about, he works with Aborigines and, um, he talks a lot about the relationship to the land. <clears throat> and actually he and I, I, I invited him to this panel in Italy <clears throat> where I spoke, I called, the title of the panel was Unheard Invitations. Mm -hmm. And I spoke about animals. Mm -hmm. I invited someone to speak about plants and trees mm -hmm. and invited him to speak about the earth. And then I invited someone um, to talk about earth law that whole new movement that you've been writing about too. So we'd have first the profound connection, ideally if the speakers were good, which they were, and then it's not enough to love, what can we do? So then the last one was earth law, here's one thing we can do. So that was the panel. And I invited him, to, his name is John, He's um, and he spoke about the connection with the earth itself. And he talked from a systems point of view, my mind doesn't go there, it's too complicated for me. But he talked about the earth herself as a massive information processing system from which everything then arises. And that if we connect with her, we can get all this different type of information, kind of related to what you're saying, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. entirely different type of information. And he and I were, were dreaming about all these great little organizations around the world and none of the massive bad ones. That's the wrong word, but you know, pharmacology mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And the power they have because right. it's coordinated and that all of us are not and will never have the force to counteract it unless we coordinate in some way. Mm -hmm. There's traditional ways to coordinate or we were daydreaming. I'm going to actually be speaking with him tonight um, about how can we make, perhaps use the earth herself and, and organic natural systems and that type of information to begin to have a self-organizing mm -hmm. um, network that begins to connect and support each other energetically against the other forces. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for what that's worth, I'm brainstorming mm -hmm. with that. I, you know, I, I don't like the term information processing system. It, it's that metaphor is right. it's, it's, it's too deadly or it's too inert for me, but the idea of communication that, that there's this constant communication going on. Now, we, again, because of language, we think of communication primarily in terms of words. But of course, you think about uh, bodily communication, uh, emotional communication, but also trees, right? I've been reading about trees, how yeah. they communicate. And it's like, I would tend to see the earth as one great communication system. You know? Thank you for that, because I was using his words and he was using systems words. And right. I think he and I would both agree this much better. I don't like, it, it did make me cringe when I said it. So I'm right. glad you picked up on it. I was thinking of something uh, uh, Thomas Berry said, you know, that the world isn't a collection of objects, it's a community of subjects. Right. And, and I think that's, the idea of communication emphasizes that rather than sort of simply material facts or data. So we're daydreaming about how can we make that happen? How can we listen to the earth somehow feel, feel 
I don't know. We'll see what happens tonight. Have you read Paul Hawken, uh, Blessed Unrest? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the interesting metaphor that he uses, and, and maybe it's more than a metaphor, of course, he has a whole chapter on understanding all of these groups that are springing forth from the earth. He, he sees them as the immune system of the earth. And, and more and more, I think that's right. This is how the earth is fighting back, as it were, or working to correct it's like, if we think non-dually, if we think of ourselves not as just on the earth, but all of us humans as well as animals as forms that the earth takes uh, um, in all of our species as kind of, I don't know, experiments or, yeah. or, 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 or the play, the play of the earth, if you prefer. Um, um, if, if we think of ourselves in that way, then it, it's certainly easy enough to think of of, of all of these organizations as, as, a, as a kind of immune system that the earth is through us trying to respond to what we have been doing to it. You're so fascinating. <laughs> How does the earth do that? Mm -hmm. Tell me. Well, <laughs> I think that's the other thing about real religion. It's a mystery that you know, it, it, it's pretty clear in Zen, and I think Buddhism generally, that what we call enlightenment or awakening isn't about, uh, now I understand how everything works. Now I understand all of, you know, interdependence so, and so forth. No, it, it's, it's more a letting go of ourselves, a letting go of our sense of separation, and then opening up to this profound mystery that we never grasp but we are grasped by it. We open ourselves to being claimed by it. Yeah. One of my teachers, uh, Robert Aiken, used to say, uh, our path isn't about clearing up the mystery, but making the mystery clear. <laughs> Clearer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether it, whether it becomes totally clear or not. But what's, what gets in the way of the clarity, of course, is our... Yeah. Our sense of separation, our, our dualistic ways of thinking and acting. Some of it, I think, I don't know, um, from my biology background, I guess, uh, um, I think we're hardwired in a lot of ways. And part mm. of what Buddhism is, or mindfulness is, is to override the hardwiring, mm. or mm. jealousy and territoriality. Mm. Mm. And override it in a way that we do connect with the larger and connect with other things so that somehow in there our hardwiring gets in the way too mm -hmm. not not just the language yeah. which happens right. it's also hardwiring actually to some degree mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's in our way uh -huh. for our spiritual growth you know it's sorry go ahead and there's the interesting question of are animals spiritual and can they grow spiritually mm. your take on that Interesting, that, uh, and that's a really good question. Um, let, let me avoid it for the moment. Um, well, no. I think the, the best Buddhist response to that is the Jataka tales, right? Is, is that something you're familiar with? No. The, okay. The Jataka tales are supposedly stories of earlier lifetimes of the Buddha when he was in training. It's like supposedly the Buddha went through these thousands or millions or billions of years or earlier lifetimes 
in order to train himself and, and become the Buddha. Uh, but in the Jataka tales, uh, the, they're always him as an animal. And it's always the animal learning something and usually sacrificing himself for the sake of other animals. So a lot of the training is, is straight compassion. Now, this is quite fascinating from, from, from your perspective, from our perspective. It's worth noting that the Jataka tales were, I think, originally pre-Buddhist or non-Buddhist. There are some verses that have become canonical, but the actual stories themselves, I'm not sure exactly where they originated. But, but it's quite fascinating that they fit so comfortably in, into the Buddhist canon, you know. And, and, I think, and I think it also fits with the fact that, uh, as I think most scholars would, would probably uh, accept, Buddhism, like, like most religions, originally evolves out of some kind of shamanism, mm -hmm. where, where there's some, you know, like shaman can turn into animals and so forth. So there's, there's more sense of that non-duality. So another side to that is, so that's animals evolving to become a higher state expressed in humans. Hmm. And another hmm. question is, do animals evolve simply on their own? Right, rather, what? right. Exactly. In other words... First evolving spirit. Yeah. In other words, are, are we the higher form? Are, are we the, the standard to which they are aspiring, right? And uh, it, it's like somebody said about civilizations, other cultures are not failed attempts to become like us, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, was, and all the new research on animal intelligence, like there are all these different branches towards consciousness. There's the octopus branch, and there's the, uh, the crow and corvid branch, and the human branch, and the mm. cetacean branch, all to consciousness. Wow, wow. I'd be interested in some good references to that uh, um, reader that I am. I mean, maybe later on you, you could mention there, some... There are of blogs about that somewhere on the website okay, okay. Uh, particularly about crows some fascinating research being done in england and germany i believe um it's astonishing how intelligent crows are i mean uh, they and, out, and it they doesn't out, fit in they out to chimpanzees in some wow. some tests wow wow yeah so my own thinking le is leaning towards mm. and i can't say that i simply don't know but it's an interesting idea that each species is evolving towards its own spirituality or intelligence. Slime molds, I get totally passionate about slime molds. That's, <laughs> that's on my website. As a little girl, I used to watch these things crawl across the yard and then suddenly... They'd flower, yeah? So Same. they're an animal and they're a plant. Right, right. And this guy called Dr. Bonner who did research on it, this, this article is on the website, as I said, they can outperform computers. A slime mold, which is just a collection of cells that eventually gather into a sort of amoeba-like thing that goes across and right. turns into spores, can outperform computers mm. in figuring out the most efficient way to get to food sources when they lay it over a map, say, of Tokyo and the Tokyo transportation system. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, wow. That the octopus's awareness is put spread throughout his whole body. Right, right. Yeah, the brain well, isn't just uh, so one the, place. Yeah, so mm. I don't know what to do with your story of those, uh, of the early, what do you call them, Jataka? The J Jataka stories, J-A-T-A-K-A. -A -A. Yeah, Jataka stories. 
But I mean, it's definitely human centric. Well, no, I, I, I take that back. There's a sense in which there, and again, how much is this the Buddhist overlay on top of an earlier stratum? Uh. Because it's very clear that, I mean, the whole point of the Jataka stories is, is the, you know, the animals ha have ability to empathize and be compassionate and to act in ways that help each other. Uh, again, how much is that human projection? How much is, uh, at least in the case of those stories, the way they're presented? But... Uh, the whole idea of incorporating that into the Buddhist canon in, in terms of understanding that as one sort of evolutionary progression toward becoming a, a Buddha, which seems to require a, a human body, that, that's a fascinating question. Yeah. I don't know that anyone has really sort of looked into that at all. In my spare time. <laughs> but, you know, this idea that you've just come up with is so exciting that that the animals and it's not just that they're it's like us i i don't see ourselves as heading toward an endpoint right the, the spirituality isn't something that pulls us ahead so that we're just trying to get there it's not right. only teleological but right. but it's the spirituality is itself the tendency to develop more and more in these ways even if there's no endpoint yeah 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 I wanted to go back because what, what you were saying about the um, uh, hardwiring, my present fascination is evolutionary psychology. Oh. I'm sort of reading everything I can on it. And um, this, this makes um, a lot of people in religion very uncomfortable. I think because a lot of us tend to be sort of uh, romantic types in the strict sense of the term. That is to say... Um, trying to return to our natural nature, as it were, if we can just get rid of certain negative social conditioning. I mean, there are certain types of Buddhism that emphasize, you know, our essential nature is basically a good kind of thing. And what evolutionary psychology shows, I think, pretty clearly, is that in order for us to have survived and thrived, some pretty competitive and ruthless tendencies are there and even seem to be hardwired into our genetic but the interesting controversy within evolutionary psychology is whether there's only individual selection or group selection, right? Individual selection, it's like, it's, in terms of evolution, the only thing that seems to count is getting your genes into the next generation, right? right? So that's gonna encourage a lot of ruthlessness. At the same time, you are related to the other people in your clan or your tribe. And, and even if you're not genetically related, your survival is dependent on each other. So there does seem to be some tension between simply being ruthless, doing what you need to do for your own success, as you define it, and working for the benefit of the tribe. Um, and it's interesting. Well, two things are interesting. First of all, doesn't this correspond to the fundamental good bad thing well, that competition cooperation exactly that we we mm. if you think in moral terms uh, the, the emphasis that society will always tend to condition into us of course is that the compassion 
the, the helping other people, the altruism, the empathy, this is good. And the individual is working only for himself or herself is that selfishness, that that's bad. It's interesting how that mm -hmm. fundamental tension between two types of evolutionary it's selection. It's within each of us. Exactly. It's within each of us. Um, well, t two other points there. One of them is that um, the unfortunate thing a lot about, a, about a lot of group selection, group, tribe, clan, is that it, what holds your clan together is your separation from some other clan. It's the inside and the outside, yeah. right? Yeah. So, and tribalism. Um, yeah. Uh, it, so there seems to be a, a problem just built into that, yeah. that tribes tend to define themselves in opposition what binds them together is that yeah. they have the same common enemy right and, and i forgot the second thing i was going to say trying Sorry. to shift all of that to a sense of commonality with all life right it goes against our very wiring so yes. we rewire ourselves fairly fast that, of course american culture does the very worst of um, the individual element exactly and so how to how to shift that paradigm really quickly mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. There's a, I spent a little time in the Amazon some years ago and read some books about it. And you know, one Amazon tribe, so I visited an Amazon tribe that was um, very, very isolated. But they were isolated. there were all these little groups and they would decide that someone in the other tribe, if, if someone died, it was witchcraft from the other, mm -hmm. another mm -hmm. tribe. Mm -hmm. And then they would go to war. Right. And the killings got so bad that some of them just ran away to civilization. Mm -hmm. um, because it got, but what it did from an ecological point of view, according to this way of thinking, was it kept them separate so that they were able to reuse the resources of the Amazon. Ah, interesting. Rather than overexploit them and mm. build sort of larger civilizations that would, interesting. You think of evolution, I think it got kind of messy where we have to cooperate and compete and where we yep. have to yep. um, murder one another to save resources. It, it's right. a, like, like a massive experiment with all kinds of things that are incredibly exquisite and things that are really difficult right. and destructive. Right. We're in the middle of a very messy process. <laughs> and and, and in, just in terms of genetics and our brain, it's like cultural evolution has happened so much more quickly than physical, mm -hmm. biological brain evolution can. So it's like for hundreds of thousands of years, we were basically evolving to live in groups of about 100 to 150. And, and at, at that level, our brain is designed to cope in terms of being able to know other people, to get a sense of where they're at, where you fit in. And to uh, have empathy for them. And to have well. empathy, right. Again, there's still tribalism. Our yeah. tribe is better than their tribe. But nonetheless, uh, at, at that level, it... it um, it, it's very hard for our hard wiring to live in, in the kind of incredibly quickly evolving yes. civilization that we do. Yeah. But the good thing is we are, we are born too early in terms of our brain, right? So we're, we're born naked and helpless. And what that means is that social evolution, social conditioning plays a much, much greater role in our 
evolution and, and our sense of how to cope and live in the world than it does for any other animal. You know, we're, we're born helpless and we're dependent on parents or caregivers to take care of us. And as part of that evolution, we learn to plug into a certain kind of worldview that then we become dependent upon. And, and we simply accept it because we're conditioned into it. And, you know, this includes religion, of course. We, we believe in a certain religion because we're taught that's the way things are. And the people that we identify with all identify with that religious worldview. Um, and so what it means is through our conditioning, it's possible, and, and this is the way that I tend to understand religion at its best, that this is part of evolution's own way of trying to compensate for the kinds of negative, aggressive, greedy mm -hmm. things that were, hired, were hardwired into us in order to be able to survive and thrive as a species. I've been, does that make any sense? I've been kicking a lot of stuff out there. It does make sense. Um, I don't, I, I would say I resonate with it some and some question yet. Mm -hmm. I'd have to think about it some more. Yeah. Um, the way, it, it certainly makes sense as a possibility. Well, let, let me finish the story uh, if I can. And I'm kind of pushing all this on you just because this is what I've been thinking about for a while now, right? When you go back to pre-axial age civilizations, okay, so anything older than say 3000 BCE, and I'm thinking especially say of Egypt, uh, Sumerians, uh, we could include in this, um, you know, China, uh, the three big, um, American civilizations, Aztecs, Incas, Mayas, and so forth. Um, what's interesting there is that religion for all of them is, there's no distinction between religious authority and political authority. It's like the religion is thoroughly embedded into the political structure which is to say that the political structure is understood to be as natural as the ecosystems of that society. They just take it for granted. And it's always hierarchical. And that's where you get into the situation where the gods are the gods of that particular civilization. And if there's a war with some other civilization, it's their gods against our gods, right? Mm -hmm. What happens with the Axial Age is quite fascinating because you get new types of religions created by founders who are not priests, but as we were saying at the beginning, they go off by themselves into the natural world, right? You, you think of a Moses or, or a Buddha or, or, or later on a, a Jesus. And, and what happens is you get a new kind of religion, which is more universalist. Mm. You get universal religions. Before that, you don't have universal religions. What you have is tribal or civilizational religions right. that, are, that are part of the identity of the civilization. And now you get somebody like the Buddha coming along, and he's not just talking about a particular culture. Rather, he's, he's talking about 
universal compassion and not just for other human beings, but for all sentient beings. And so you get two things, a universalism that identifies with something much greater than just your own particular civilization. And the other side of that is the emphasis on compassion, metta, right? The metta meditation. And this is huge. This is like the greatest development in human civilization. And what happens? It immediately gets lost for the most part. It gets appropriated by the emperors. They use this for their own empires, right? Yeah. If you think about the three great, um, the three great, uh, when we think of a religion, we tend to think of religion as something missionary, but the three greatest missionary religions, and there's only three that survive, right? Buddhism, Christianity, Islam. How did they survive? How did they do as well as they did? They all became the religion of an empire. Yeah. And if you have an empire, you want something that's going to unite the different peoples. You need a sacred book. You need, you need a sacred um, um, teachings. And, and so what happens is in a way, the fundamental axial age realization is lost. And then you get, for example, Christians fighting Muslims rather than realizing that both of those are, are universalistic, that for both of them, we're all children of God, but, it, but now it falls back into the old pattern. So here's, here's my point. I think we're at, when we look at the kind of struggle we have today, we could say that the axial age the teachings were never embodied. They were embodied by a few people individually. They were never embodied by a civilization. They were never, you know, maybe Ashoka to a little bit, but even then I'm not so sure. Um, so what we're confronted with now is the need for a new axial age, but mm -hmm. one that explicitly makes it very clear that we're not simply talking about other human beings, but that we're talking about mm. the earth as a whole, all sentient beings, mm. all trees, mm. you know, all, all of its beings, not just the, not just the ones that we think of as sentient. And th this is kind of the great challenge. And this is where our civilization is going to rise and fall. Let's do Either it. We're going to shift to this or we're going to kill each other. That, that really seems to me the, the, uh, the choice we're in. My immediate reaction to you is, let's do it. <laughs> um, that, that's uh, very interesting and very, it's exactly what I'm working on in my way, right? Wow. Yes, I think so. Yeah. I mean, my worldview may emphasize different things, but I think it's fundamentally the same. Fundamental thing, yeah. The same fundamental concern. Very rich interfaces to explore there. Right. And how we can support one another's work and ideas. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to come visit you guys sometime. We're not that far away, really. No, you're not. Yeah. Um, just one other thought. I talked about the biological wiring, but mm -hmm. we also have this incredible forebrain mm -hmm. that we right. often don't develop much. Right. Our institutions don't develop it, mm -hmm. um, except for uh, how to get money or how to plan, but they don't develop the compassion element. Mm -hmm. Uh, my own feeling is yes, that new newborn baby has incredible ability potentially, yes. and I think it varies among people. Mm -hmm. But I think we all have the incredible ability to become spiritual. So that's that's wired. That's wired in us too. 
So yes. whether wired, hardwired, or hardwired, so that we connect to something larger, and that's the wiring. I uh -huh. don't know, and I don't know with animals either. But that's another side to what you're talking about about the newborn. And I personally, being sort of an optimist, um, think we have this incredible potential, and what a huge mm -hmm. tragedy it would be. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm kind of tireless I, in what I'm doing because, for both for the animals and because what a tragedy for humans. So. I think that's exactly right, that this forebrain is, 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 I mean, there's something unformed about it. Mm -hmm. It's like language to some degree gives it, gives it form, but it, it's almost like it's pure potential. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah. how that's going to develop, uh, yeah. it's there to be conditioned. And unfortunately, a lot of the conditioning is, is very much self-oriented, uh, individual, my own well-being is separate from your well-being oriented. Um, but and there are that, many of us, so it's very hard to undo seven billion of us. It would have been easier if there were only a million of us. Hmm. So that energy is, is uh, against what we're doing. Hmm. But on the other hand, there's that Paul Hawken type shift, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I what mean, can you do besides try? I mean, you and I aren't the only ones uh, thinking this way, you know? Some, something is happening. There is a change of consciousness that's going to happen in different ways for different people. Yeah. And that's sort of what John Thompson and I were trying to think, how can we help this? How can we help foster this? Hmm. You said you and I aren't. Okay, so who do you know that I should talk to? Who I don't know that you hmm. should talk to? Or should hmm. we all talk together in some way, hmm. informally? No, hmm. no, no, no more structures, organizations, uh -huh. you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, this is wonderful, David. Thank yeah, you. thank you, Susan. Yeah. And, I, I felt a real connection from the first moment. So uh, yeah. I, I, I sense that I, it feels really good. Thank you. Yes, it does. This is Dr. Susan Eyrick for Earthfire Radio, a production of Earthfire Institute. If you would like to help with our mission to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature, please make a donation at our website, www.earthfireinstitute.org. The soundscapes are by Wild Sanctuary Presents, Bernie Krauss and Philip Auberg. Thank you for listening. <laughs>